Welcome to this episode of the Institute of Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. In today's edition, titled Approaching Eating Disorders Through a Person-Centered Model, local experts from the Quad Cities will share tools and resources in caring for those with an eating disorder. This episode's podcast host is Ann Garten. Ann is the director of the SAU Institute for Person-Centered Care and nursing faculty. Before we get started, we want to remind everyone to please review current COVID reports from reliable sources such as the CDC, World Health Organization, and your local and state public health department. If you live in the Quad Cities, you can visit TogetherQC.com for reliable local resources. This podcast was recorded through the phone to support the current CDC recommendations. Welcome to the IPCC podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Person-Centered Care in collaboration with KALA-FM. I'm Ann Garten, Director of the Institute for Person-Centered Care here at St. Ambrose University, and will be your host for today's podcast. Today, I'm excited to introduce to our listeners Stephanie Burrow and Betsy Zamuda-Swanson, both from Amy's Gift. Amy's Gift is a resource provider in the Quad Cities focusing on eating disorders. And we chose this week to broadcast because National Eating Disorders Awareness Week is February 22nd to 28th. Betsy, I wonder if you could share a little bit about yourself. Sure, Ann. Yeah, um, I've been a longtime social worker who has worked as a psychotherapist for over 25, 30 years. And I've worked a lot with eating disorders. And that's how Stephanie and I met quite a few years ago. Um, so I do a lot of different things. I do a body psychotherapy approach, but here today, I'm here to talk about eating disorders. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Stephanie, love to have you here as well. Can you give us a little bit of an intro of yourself as well? Yes. So I am the project coordinator of Amy's Gift, which is a local um, a Quad Cities Eating Disorders Consortium. And as Betsy says, I've been able to um, be in this role for a little over a decade now. It's just been um, a great joy to work in this way with providers in our community to help get people with eating disorders the care that they need. Thanks for joining us. Love having you both. So, Stephanie, I wonder if you would share a little bit about the mission of Amy's Gift. Yeah, of course. So, the mission of Amy's Gift is guided by the Amy Health and Cell Foundation's message of hope, help, and healing by promoting awareness, understanding, diagnosis, and treatment for eating disorders in our community. And as you can tell in the name, Amy's Gift, um, it is tied to the Amy Health and Cell Foundation uh, because Amy herself passed away at the early age of 33 due to complications from an eating disorder. And when she created her foundation, her family really wanted to make sure that people in the Quad Cities had the resources that they needed because eating disorders can be a very complicated disease to manage, whether on your own or with the help of a family. So they wanted to make sure we were addressing the needs in the community. And we found that the best way to do that was going to be not only to do events for the public, and to provide a specific list of resources to the public, but also to reach out to providers and make sure providers were getting the information that they needed. So uh, those are really some of the tenets that uh, Amy's Gift was founded on and, and the work that we do. 
So it sounds like your mission is not just uh, the care of um, people with disorders, but also as a resource for providers. Tell us a little bit about your overarching population. So the overarching population, I mean, we have three different bullet points that we always talk about as we're looking to allocate our time and energy every year. And one of those is, of course, addressing that population who's experiencing eating disorders in the community. But then there's also that understanding and awareness component that we want to get out to the general population so that they know how to advocate for themselves if they're experiencing an eating disorder. That's one of the things with eating disorders is it can be something that you, that, that you get swept up in, that you don't know how to reach out for help or you can be a family member of someone with an eating disorder or have friends, of, you know, be friends of someone with an eating disorder. And so some of these events and, and even the prevention work that we do in schools is really out there so that we can do as much um, advocacy for those with eating disorders in the community as we can. And then, of course, with that public uh, side, then I, then I also mentioned the providers because the providers are that first line of defense. And really, it's, we have our specialist list in the community, of which Betsy is one, but we also have learned through, I mean, we will learn, of course, through focus groups and just through general knowledge that people, when they have eating disorders, they're going to go to their general practitioner. And if a general practitioner doesn't know how to screen, doesn't know how to assess and help guide that person to the resources that they need, then how are they ever going to find them? So it, it really does tie into the person-centered care part of this podcast to say if we're not encouraging providers to be aware of the needs of their client and, and in a more expansive way maybe than, they're, than, they, than they do because there's so much on their plate when they walk in, but sometimes there are simple screening tools they can take in, simple awarenesses they can take with them. Uh, and then, of course, we do trainings that are going to help guide those providers not only to know what the, the latest information is on eating disorders, but where do you really need to look when you're with your patient to make sure that if they're experiencing that, you're, you're sending them where they need to go. Stephanie done a fabulous job of helping to educate some local providers, doctors, nurse practitioners, counselors, so that people, when they go to services, they actually get somebody who knows something about what's going on. You know, oftentimes therapists, like everybody else, they hear about something, they want to help people, they so desperately want to help people. But unfortunately, sometimes that means they might take on somebody with an eating disorder and maybe it's just too complicated or the person with the eating disorder doesn't feel like they're really getting what they need. So that can be quite a challenge. And uh, Stephanie, again, has done a fabulous job. So the support group um, is also sponsored by Amy's Gift. And through COVID, you know, we, it meets weekly, although we've changed some things because we have to keep accommodating to COVID. And so that means um, we've gone to meeting twice a month online, but we will move back into the face-to-face -face as people get vaccinated, it becomes available and we can. Um, but one of the other things that I want to point out that is so crucial that people are trained is because so often, you know, eating disorders come out when people are in a transitional age. And so that might be leaving middle school and going to high school. It might be leaving high school and going to college. 
It might be getting married. It might be, you know, it can be anything, but these changes of transitions that naturally happen. And so um, oftentimes, especially I've noticed with the really young people, so I'm talking more teens and maybe even people in their 20s, is they have an eating disorder and they don't know why and they can't figure it out. And it's like, I'm not hungry. Why is everybody upset about this? And so um, that can be come quite a, a big issue and create some resistance because the person doesn't have enough grounding to realize that oh, something's not working here. And they're concerned because there's a good reason for them to be concerned. So Amy, or, sorry, Betsy, when you and I started practice, we were taught that this age group and, and female were the main population that we would see in eating disorders. I wonder if you would share with us a little bit of how that has changed over time. Well, it's broadened quite a bit, right. And as everybody has gotten older, <laughs> things have changed. So, so one aspect that's different is there's about 1% is the number I have, but I think Stephanie has found it can be as high as 3% of males, men, will have eating disorders. And in my experience, it's been people that were in different sports or different kind of extracurricular activities um, in high school or in college where they had to be seen. And so, um, or their weight had to meet something. So, you know, of course, weightlifting, you know, comes to mind. So that's been one of the areas. But even people who were highly concerned about their looks, whether they were a bike rider or uh, in another kind of a sport, sometimes they also have this difficulty. Another thing that happens is, um, you know, there's been this model for women to be thin and to look their best. And so when body changes happen, whether it's through adolescence and turning into a woman's body whether it's through um, just right before menopause or during menopause or middle age after menopause or somewhere in there, when a woman's body starts to change differently, if she had some smackings of an eating disorder due to different parts of her personality and her life when she was young, sometimes as these changes come up unexpectedly, which is like, oh, my body's handling fat differently. What am I going to do about this? Some of those old behaviors, those concerns, and those fears can resurface. So some of what we have seen are women who are not what would be the traditional age still coming in and having some issues with binge eating or dieting or restrictive eating. And it's no longer it used to be white, middle class to upper class females. That's no longer the case either. We do see people of color. And maybe we see more binging, maybe we see um, more of a variety of it, but yeah, we still see them. So unfortunately, it's still out there. So you mentioned earlier, Stephanie, about um, some of the training and resources that you guys provide, but I think in, in our pre-conversation, we also talked a little bit about how sometimes you need to move out of the Quad Cities to get that right support, right, and, and find the right provider. Um, and that's not to say that we don't have great providers here in the Quad Cities. We just know that some people are really complex and you need that specialty. I wonder if one of you would want to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to the fact that 
as you said, we have wonderful providers here. Um, but as with person-centered care, everybody's needs are going to be different. And one of the first steps that, as I've worked with Amy's gift and have been guided, one of the first important steps, if you have an eating disorder, is to get assessed by somebody locally, to get assessed by a local specialist if you can, because you'll get to see somebody in person. You'll get to find out where you're at in, you know, in that eating disorder experience and where the next step for treatment might be for you. And if it goes beyond what we have to offer in this area, and as Betsy said, there might be providers that don't have, so Betsy will probably have a better knowledge of different treatment centers, and she'll be able to guide a person even if they need to go beyond. But there are some cases in which there, there needs to be more research done or people want more opinions. Of course, um, also, they just might need more guidance. And so we have um, on our website, on the local treatment page, we have a list of our local professional therapists who work with eating disorders. We have a list of dietitians who work with eating disorders. And then we have a list of national and, lo um, and local organizations. But it's the national organizations that I want to focus on because they have directories that can guide you to that broader expanse of inpatient programs, um, partial outpatient programs, and um, we even have a specific new role that was developed called a treatment placement specialist where if you wish to speak with somebody who has that position, they work specifically with all of the different outpatient treatment programs that are accredited and really well-reviewed in our region, and they can help see which one is the best fit because it takes time to find the best fit. And it might not be um, in Bessie's, like, actual schedule to find the best fit for you. There might be five different outpatient programs that you want to concern or you want to consider, and you might want to work with somebody who knows all of these outpatient programs specifically, knows what they have to offer, and whether that's a good fit for you. So um, it's really important when you're dealing with eating disorders to make sure that that person's getting the specific uh, support that they need. And um, And luckily, you know, we've evolved uh, as a as a treatment culture to have that for people with eating disorders. The next step, of course, is finding finding easier coverage. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I, I will add to that that the first step is going to a physician and going to locally, it would be going to Amy's Gift website and looking at who does some assessment for this, who knows something about this. And then going to that person to find out more info and to get an evaluation. Because some people, depending on where they're at, their insurance might not pay for anything other than outpatient care. And if it's somebody whose their weight is fairly stable, they've got these um, behaviors that are very disturbing, but they are willing to work outpatient, then that's probably going to be the best place for them. Um, but it can get very tricky. And... Sometimes people get, you know, sometimes parents are really uncomfortable having somebody be at home with an eating disorder because the parent feels like they're not doing enough. And so they would feel more comfortable just with this person in a program somewhere. Well, one, the insurance may or may not pay for that because it might not be to that level of care. Um, and two, part of the issue when people do get sent away to whether it's an inpatient program, a partial hospital program, 
part of the problem can be so that how are they going to get acclimated upon discharge back to their family, back to their friends, and back to what they have to deal with? Because that can be a real shock. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to, once somebody has spent this time and this energy making these changes, to be actually like thrown back into the whole eating disorder. So fortunately, a lot more programs are working with family dynamics, and especially for somebody who's still young enough to be living at home, that's pretty crucial. I'm not saying families cause eating disorders. I'm saying if you want somebody to heal from one, there's going to be some changes that need to be made. Indeed, indeed. So, and, and what I'm hearing is we must put the person in the center, right, of their care and, and truly be person-centered for them to have positive outcomes. You know, and it's a tricky thing. It's a very tricky thing because as people lose body weight, their thinking changes. Mm-hmm. And there have been some studies as to if a person is so much underweight, their brain scans actually couldn't look like they have Alzheimer's. They don't. But people also tend to get more obsessive and more compulsive when they lose weight. And so if they are focused on restricting, I can't listen to them totally because they're going to be restricting. So I know I have to put into place, we need to make sure your body gets the food, nutrition it needs so that you can think and make better decisions for yourself. So it's kind of a tricky thing. Yeah, as a social worker, I'm totally trained in the relationship we develop and self-determinism, what is it they want? And that's been a challenge at times with eating disorders because sometimes what the family wants, what the person wants, it doesn't all mesh. And, and so, right, is a person healthy enough to make their own decisions and how can they be guided and supported to make their best decisions? I wonder, um, one of the things we talked about uh, earlier was how uh, our culture, we need to start listening to our bodies and uh, understanding what our bodies are telling us, because then we may be able to um, prevent some of this, right? Uh, and, and understanding that our, our kiddos need to understand how they can share what they're feeling and, and also have a little bit of control, age-specific, on, on some of that. I wonder if you want to speak to that. Yeah, I totally would agree with that as well, that um, what, what clearly happens, and I'm saying this as somebody who's worked with eating disorders for years, what clearly happens is a person gets anxious. Something causes some anxiety. They get anxious about something, and, and the solution, the interpretation comes back to, it's my body. And so then they try to get away from that. And the way they try to get away from that is they think. Because some people think up some very good things. Okay, if I'm uncomfortable with my body weight, it's not a bad thought that maybe if I change my body weight, I'd be more comfortable. But in the doing of that, sometimes people totally rely only on their thinking brain, not their brain that is most connected to their body and their intuition. And wait a minute, maybe this isn't a good idea. So the more a person relies on their thinking brain, the more they're going to come up with these solutions. But each solution sends them further and further away from their body. And so, right, that's a challenge. In addition to when we as parents are raising our kids, we are in charge of their health. We are in charge of their food. We are in charge of a lot. 
But as they grow, then, as we talked about, you know, recently, at some point, we have to say to our kids, okay, here is your health. And here is your eating habits. And here is your decision making. And so they have to take that on. And that can be kind of a slippery transition as well. You know, are they prepared? I want to just kind of talk about the prevention work that I've done in the schools in the past that are around body image. And one of the things that I like to focus on when we're talking about body image is it's not just how you look uh, in the mirror or how you think you look, it's how you feel. And there are so many ways in which, like Betsy said, we just want to manipulate things in the realm instead of be present with who we are and with uncomfortable emotions that show up. And when I am talking to those students, a lot of times what we want to impart on them is that their body is this miraculous thing that does amazing work for them every day. And that it's not just the sum of an image um, or perception. It's all of these wonderful working parts. And so part of the knowledge that Betsy's saying that we should be giving to children more, I think, is that as well, is just that gift as you're growing up of appreciating your body, even if it's changing and, and making you feel very uncomfortable, and even if it's speaking to you and telling you to take care of it. You know, I think that um, eating disorders can also be spurred by, by illness, and, and it's one of those things where how do you instead of trying to manipulate or punish yourself or your body, how do you come into a more nurturing and loving and appreciative relationship? And that is a huge, that is a huge shift. Even though we, we talk about body positivity, we still talk about it in a very superficial way sometimes. And I think I'm just going to mention, like, I, I follow Lizzo and I love Lizzo. And she, if you don't know, she's that um, African-American She's just like this beautiful, big, black, musical presence in the world, right? But she also has these messages of body positivity. And the other day she had a post on Instagram where she was literally just talking to her belly. And she said, I wake up every day now and I talk to my belly with loving language and I look in the mirror. And it's something that simple is such a transformative act, you know? So I I just wanted to put that out there because... There are these things that we just weren't really taught to do, just have that really loving, reciprocal relationship with ourselves and our body. It's, it's, it, is, it can be intuitive, and it feels so good when you do it. You just were never really trained to. And I'm going to build on that because it, um, there are these levels of it. You know, there's the level of looking in the mirror and telling myself I look okay, but I may or may not believe it. And there's this other level of how do I look in the mirror and feel something in my body and let my sensation speak to me. And so even though my eyes are telling me, whoa, my stomach looks, you know, way out of proportion. I think it's too big. But if I actually look in the mirror and feel my stomach, which is then going to take me into not looking in the mirror, but feeling into my stomach, and it doesn't feel too big, you know, it might on the outside if I use my hand, but if I use my sensations and I really go inside myself of how does that feel, I'm going to find this stuff isn't measuring up. 
And I think mm-hmm. that's part of that part of it. So, you know, an example I can give of that, you know, from my life, when I was 12, I wanted to learn how to dive into a swimming pool. And so my friends, we go to the pool one day, my friends are, you do this, you do this, you do this. I practice, I practice, I practice. By the end of the afternoon, I could do it. A couple of days later, I go back to the swimming pool. I'm standing at the edge of the pool and I'm like, okay, what do you do? Where do you put your hands? How do you do this? And I'm trying to think my way through it. I couldn't do it. So what we think doesn't mean we got it in the body. But then when I just quit thinking and I just said, okay, get informed, I could do it. So I think that that's another part. We can't use our thinking to be in our body. We got to be in our body and use our feelings. I would concur. One last question. What um, cultural and social shifts, Betsy, are you seeing with um, the medical model, the complementary, alternative fields, that sort of thing? Are you seeing anything that's positive or that, ooh, we don't know enough yet? Uh, Well, I tell you, I'm seeing a lot happening that way. And so when somebody comes into therapy, I'm, you know, I used to be, okay, you got to see a dietitian, you got to see a doctor, you got to do this, you got to do this. I want somebody helping me and I want a team to work with their care. But at the same time, if the person, as I get to know them, starts to tell me that there's this coworker who's really into nutrition and is very sound and is actually telling them, you don't need to be dieting. You need to be, you know, doing some more nurturing things. I will start to work with, let's look who you have in your circle that you're already comfortable with. Because all of these relationships take time to build. So if there's somebody there who can help in some different ways, you know, if it doesn't work, I can refer. But let's check out first what's what's already working for you. What are you gravitating toward? What do you like? Now, admittedly, sometimes this is going to be somebody saying, well, you know, this person is really good. But as we talk more and I'm asking some questions, I'm getting the sense of, oh, but this is somebody who's on a really restrictive diet. That's not going to be helpful. So, again, you know, it's the therapist's job, I think, to look for the resources, to help them find resources, to give them resources like Amy's Gift, um, websites, things to check out, and then to look for where's the fit, because the fit is going to make it work, and we want success. I want to thank you both for all the work that you've been committed to and Amy's gift and sharing these tools and resources with our listeners. And I want to share with our listeners that in the links, there will be a link to Amy's gift as well as many other national and local resources. So check it out. Thank you both. Glad to have you. Thank you. for listening to this episode of the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, brought to you by St. Ambrose University's Institute for Person-Centered Care and KALAFM. We hope you will tune in with us next month, and you can learn more about the Institute by connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter.